Hello and welcome to Brief Musings from a Slightly Crazed Artistic Mind. I'm your host, the aforementioned Slightly Crazed Artistic Mind, Joshua Halstead. Normally on this show, I present you each week with a single 15 to 25 minute long essay about something I love. But today I want to try something a bit more experimental. So in pursuit of this, today's episode comes to you in three parts. As you'll notice, these essays are a little bit different than usual. So let's just jump into it. Part 1. Who Killed the American Dream? The title of this entry, I would hope predictably, is a reference to the seminal 90s show Twin Peaks by David Lynch. The essential mystery of said show was Who Killed Laura Palmer? Twin Peaks captivated American audiences in a very similar manner to the way many true crime stories do when they occur. See, cleverly, Lynch set the story in a small, idyllic town. These type of sleepy town where nothing ever happens. The sort of town essential to the rose-tinted view of classic America we all collectively misremember, and then suddenly, this horrific crime occurs and anyone could be the culprit. The tagline, Who Killed Laura Palmer, and the premise of Twin Peaks in general, is very reminiscent of, and seems to have been inspired somewhat by, another TV hook, Who Shot J.R.? That was the catchphrase used to promote season 4 of the original run of Dallas. In the season 3 finale, J.R. Ewing was shot by an off-camera assailant, and the mystery of who this was was used to promote the upcoming season. Ultimately, in season 4, in the premiere, Who Done It, it was revealed that his sister-in-law, Kristen Shepard, had killed him. This was the 1980-81 season. Ten years later, Twin Peaks would premiere. Nowadays, you're more likely to find people sucked into true crime stories in that way than a fictional TV show. The way people discuss Laura Palmer's murder at the water cooler in 1990 is now more reserved for the likes of The Tiger King, or more recently, The Disappearance of Gabby Petito. Regardless of whether people are fascinated by real-life evil or fictional evil, there is a peculiar and persistent fascination with it in our country. Now, sure. It would be egotistical to presume that I could possibly diagnose this phenomenon myself, so instead I seek to wax philosophic without any claim to preciseness. That being said, I feel like this obsession with the macabre invading small town USA at least partially comes down to the collective acknowledgement that life is fragile. The awareness that at any moment, any day, doing any activity, no matter how mundane, you could lose your life or suffer horrific situations. That and the awareness that there is evil all around us. That the kindly old man, the politician, the pastor, the contestant on the dating game could be a serial killer. It's the reason Alfred Hitchcock's scariest films remain Rear Window and Psycho. Here's the thing, though. We're all unable to actually let go of the imagined America of our nostalgia, and consequently, we are faced with the unnerving juxtaposition of horrific evil and childlike innocence. We also, I suppose, find some reassurance in the fact that no matter what we've done, what secrets we are hiding, or what we will do, at least we aren't John Wayne Gacy or Richard Ramirez. None of this has much of anything to do with me other than I've been watching a lot of true crime and this is what I've been thinking about. I actually thought about it a lot lately. The other day I was watching a documentary about Amanda Knox, remembering when all that unfolded. It all came back to me. Her nickname, Foxy Noxy, and the slut-shaming, and the pictures of the crime scene. I was so little when it happened, but it was inescapable. I remember it all so well. That and Casey Anthony. 
I remember the magazine covers that had the picture of her laughing while holding a gun and saying, Foxy Noxy, the devil with an angel's face. There are many peculiar things from my childhood that I remember without frame of reference for why. Part 2. Remembering things that never happened. This more than likely isn't a shock to anyone listening, but I tend to talk a lot about pop culture with other people who share the fixation. A lot of the time, those conversations tend to drift to the things we grew up with and the nostalgia we feel toward them, which displays itself in many ways, including having way too much knowledge about H2O Just Add Water, or being way too passionate about iCarly, or coming up with fan theories about the future of Halloween Town. These conversations are fun ways to engage with someone about a shared silly passion and find camaraderie. But as I've had these discussions, I've noticed that quite often, friends would remember being little kids when something came out, but no, actually, they were in their early teens. Another common occurrence would be somebody remembering the premiere of a show they weren't alive to have seen the premiere of. Initially, I'd be inclined to consider they are perhaps lying slightly to make it seem less embarrassing that they like something, but I don't actually think that's the case. I think they are honest goof-ups. With this idea in mind, I began to consider the things that I recall growing up with and examine them through the same lens. For instance, I'm a really big fan of the Halloween Town series, and I consistently say I grew up with it, but no actually, I didn't, not really anyway. I wasn't allowed to watch them as a little kid, and didn't see them until around 8th grade when I would have been 12 or 13. However, they were consistently run on Disney Channel when I was a kid, so I had seen bits and pieces throughout my childhood, thus creating a nostalgic feeling toward it. Obviously now it's been long enough since I first watched it to have nostalgia, but I felt that way when I first watched it. Not only that, but I find myself feeling nostalgic while watching slasher films from the 80s, a decade before my birth. I don't feel that way when I watch big studio films from the era, mind you, but only with smaller budget indie pictures. I've realized that this seems to come from the fact that the world of lower class 1980s is a lot closer to the world I grew up in than the world is now, and thusly I am able to tap into and connect to it on that wavelength even though I wasn't alive at the time. Right, so where am I going with this? To put it simply, I don't think our nostalgia hinges predominantly on reality. Think about 80s nostalgia bait TV shows and movies like Stranger Things and It. The fashion in these projects doesn't actually reflect the day-to-day -day lives of people in the 1980s, but rather a heightened version. The kind that would have been on MTV and in movies. The needle drops are all songs from throughout the 80s that gained even more popularity in the last 30 plus years, but not necessarily the biggest hits of the time, and not necessarily even from the same part of the decade. Everything in these projects is heightened to reflect what people remember most of the 80s, which tends to be the wild and crazy things, and not their day-to-day -day lives. Or, perhaps it would be more fitting to say, they reflect what people want to remember from the 80s. That's what I find most compelling here. When we go into nostalgic whims, it is of course for the good things. We remember the candies and drinks we grew up drinking and eating, many of which don't exist anymore. We remember the movies and TV shows we used to watch and how they made us feel. We remember hyper-specific details, but through a bit of candy-coated haze. It is by nature a half-truth. We weaponize our nostalgia to wash away the bad memories we also carry with us from our childhoods. 
which is why so much nostalgia bait is in the horror genre. It allows us to confront the truth about our nostalgia and how we abuse it, while bringing forward a threat that is imagined. It's fictional and unrealistic, so we can still escape it. Part 3. The Sweet Sting of Whiskey, a short story. The scent of whiskey and orange peel whisked into his nostrils. All around were the pitter-patter of feet shuffling, glasses clinking, liquor being poured, and kids in their twenties laughing gleefully. That sound was displeasing above all else. The sound of these kids, who had no idea what would become of them once their hair grayed, going on in blissful ignorance. He could hear in their voices the familiar sound of unchecked idealism that hadn't yet been squashed by reality. Chilled glass pressed between his lips, the taste of bitters and whiskey drowned his taste buds and his feelings. The ice rested upon his upper lip and stung a little, but in a strangely agreeable manner. Large incandescent light bulbs had been strung throughout the pub as decorations, but by that time of night they provided the only light present. Having a sort of muted, soft light to them meant that the smallish room had a dim, sort of mellow atmosphere. This feeling, however, was not shared by Tobias Musk, who sat on a bar stool alone, sipping his old-fashioned slowly and people-watching. Across the room, at a two-person table in the far left corner, sat a young couple, a man in a blazer and slacks, sporting a fedora, dress shoes, and a beard just unkempt enough to give the pale impression of ruggedness, sat back facing the wall. Directly across from him, a young woman wearing a nice dress with a vest over top and high heels. Tobias pegged them at around 25 and 23 respectively. The man in the blazer was leaning back, a smile on his face, telling her about some web development tool he was working on and how it would revolutionize internet marketing as we know it. An assertion Tobias knew was almost certainly exaggerated, but across from him, the woman sat, leaned on the table, listening to him in absolute belief and wonder. After a moment or two, the woman began to speak, and she discussed her aspirations of one day being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company so that she could use the company and her earnings to provide assistance to the impoverished and hungry. She told the man of all the work she had done, graduating from a prestigious school, working her way up her current place of employment from the mailroom to a manager of analytics, how she was even preparing a proposal for the reconstruction of the company's website. The man feigned interest, but it was clear that in his mind he was a king, and she should be in awe of him. Tobias knew that feeling well. He remembered when he was that age, just starting to work his way up the business world as well. Toby remembered a first date years ago at another bar in town. He acted much the same, and now was disgusted with himself. The arrogance of the young is truly a human travesty. When the girl had spoken about her dreams and all the work she had already done in service of them, he too had pretended to care. The idealism he clung to at that age convinced him she would reach her dreams because she deserved them, but he wasn't concerned with her dreams in the first place because although his idealism wanted her to succeed, all he really wanted in that moment was to take her home. Now, years later, he watched this couple, listened to the girl's dreams. This time, he really listened, but it didn't matter. 
After all these years, he had come to understand that it didn't matter what she deserved, or how hard she worked for it. More than likely, this woman, who had worked so hard, and who was good and generous, wouldn't be granted any higher position than the one she already had. But the man across from her, smirking and pretending to care about her goals, he would undoubtedly succeed in the business world, because life simply isn't fair. And so, to that, he drank once more. Sheesh, Toby! You look like a washed-up whale bile! The barkeep interrupted the people watching, breaking up the thought loop inside Toby's mind. You should see the inside, he responded. My, I guess you could call it a heart, seems to be pumping the black sludge slower than normal. If you were any more dramatic, you'd be a character in a Sarah Dresden novel. I'm more than a little concerned that as a 46-year-old man, you not only know who Sarah Dresden is, but what type of book she writes. I have a teenage daughter, the barkeep responded, smirking. What's your excuse? Unfortunately, as an aspiring novelist, I find it necessary to stay up to date on what is considered, and I use this term loosely, literature. Do you hear yourself talk? You know it's okay for a book to just make you feel, right? Of course it is, but I think there should be some actual substance included. Some of these novels coming out now seem to lack any sense of reality. I remember reading books like Grapes of Wrath and Huck Finn in school and being moved passionately because they were above all else truthful. But the world, Americans perhaps the most, seem to have developed a distaste for truth. How can these romanticized views of the world be as moving as everyone seems to believe they are? So if I looked at your desk, the barkeep began, what would I see? A lot of unfinished manuscripts written in the throes of the greatest pains of my existence. The barkeep nodded knowingly. Can I get you another? Make it a double, Sam. With that, the barkeep walked away to prepare the drink, and Toby returned at once to the world of melancholia within his mind. This time in a state of nostalgia, not for a moment, but for a feeling. A feeling he was near certain he had once felt, but couldn't quite place. This sort of unburdened and joyous feeling, he remembered. Finally, it hit him, like a sucker punch to the stomach. He was nostalgic for a time that never existed. He supposed it was normal to yearn for a time when things were simpler, when things were happy, maybe a time when you were younger, a child or a teenager perhaps, but he realized that that never existed. The life is never really simpler. When you're young, you just don't realize how complicated and demented it is. We convince ourselves that there was once this time when life was simple, when there was no worry and no pain. Not really, anyway. Because when we go back far enough, we reach an age where all we remember is the good. But that doesn't mean that all there really was was good. It simply means that we only retained the good. As the nostalgia waned, he noticed his new old fashion was three quarters gone. He had not, in honesty, recalled even getting it in the first place. It must have been force of habit. Quickly, he finished off his drink with a big swig and signaled the barkeep to come to him. I don't know I ought to give you another one just yet, the barkeep said with a slight worried expression. No matter. I'm on my way home anyway. What's the damage? Let's see, the bartender counted on his fingers. Should be 3650. 
Standing up to reach his wallet was somewhat more difficult than anticipated and he almost fell over, but he managed to slide his rear back into the seat just in time. Toby handed the barkeeper his credit card, watched him slide it, placed it back in his wallet, and made for the door. Can I call you a cab? The bartender asked. No, it's a nice night. I think I'll walk. And with that, he was out the door. The street was lit with the multicolored lights of capitalism, the only things visible through the industrial smog. A sort of cruel shrine to the business over individual mentality, his disdain for American consumerism was the only ideal that he hadn't managed to shake yet. And what's more, he just so happened to be one of the hands helping the cold machine to keep ticking. Each step he took through the mostly barren streets bore more bitterness. When he was young, he had been so full of idealism, so full of passion. Once upon a time, he had been so keen to protest injustice, tear down those who abused power, and fight against the corporate machine. Back then, he would have died for the cause. But now, he had become the very thing he dreamt of dismantling. But that's what this world does to you. Slowly but surely sucks the soul out of your still-beating body until you're nothing but a hollow shell of a once-joyous person. Biting cold air smacked against his skin as he made the final turn onto his street. As he traversed the street, he noticed that nearly every house had something in common. A single light turned on. Undoubtedly, he thought, those are the lights of despair. The lights left on by the mothers and fathers who had stayed up entirely too late for a Wednesday night, drinking homemade cocktails and fretting over the opportunities they sacrificed for their children and spouses, the futures that could have existed, while their televisions played in the background. Most of them, assuredly, had long since drifted into the brief escape from reality called sleep. More fairly, perhaps, it could be called temporary death. In that moment, he thought, not for the first time, that perhaps he should have died for his ideals. That maybe if he had gone the way of martyrdom, at least he wouldn't have to see what becomes of every precious child when they grow up. He entered his house and made his way to the kitchen, past all of the picture frames of a life seemingly a million years in the past. Pictures of his son, who at 17 had hung himself in this room, and his wife, who had suffered a mental break after finding him. He remembered the divorce because despite his best efforts, he couldn't be there for her the way she needed, and the resentment he felt toward his son for tearing their family apart. As he poured coke into a glass over the top of whiskey and ice, he recalled the moment his son Joseph had been born, standing there in the hospital with his wife and his brand new son, and he remembered that in that moment everything had actually been perfect. A tear began to well up, but he wiped it away and walked to the couch. He turned the TV to the news, laid down and watched while he sipped the whiskey. After a while, he slipped into temporary death, glass still in hand. Okay, so post-essay Josh here. I hope you all enjoyed this little experiment. Um, I know this episode was a little more somber than usual, uh, but I want to assure you, uh, everyone listening, that I am fine. I just think it's important every once in a while to take some time to reflect on culture, the world around you, your influences, and of course, yourself. 
So next week we'll be back to normal. Thank you all for taking the time over the last month and a half to listen to my show and support me. It, it means a lot. Have a wonderful week.